So you can take your Bible and open it to Psalm 34. Psalm 34. And I also should say that what I'm doing tonight is actually a sermon. So this morning was the Bible study, uh, kind of talking about the text. And today, uh, this evening, is going to be a verse-by-verse exposition of a, a psalm that I've entitled, Some ABCs of Trusting God. Now, earlier I mentioned that I began teaching my Hebrew class again, the fall class, and the very first day, the very first lesson is teaching them the alphabet, or to be more correct, the Aleph base, <laughs> because that's the name of the first two letters, Aleph and Beth. And students who are in graduate school, students who think they know some things, and they do, find themselves entering into a strange new world, trying to pronounce sounds that are unfamiliar, learning symbols that are unfamiliar. The alphabet is one of the most basic forms of writing. You really can't communicate in writing very well without knowing an alphabet. Um, and so there are things like what I gave the kids to do tonight, and you can have one later if you like, and it's a handout that shows you how to draw Hebrew letters with arrows and numbers and things like that. It won't make you any more spiritual if you learn how to do this. There's a lot of unspiritual people who know how to do this sort of thing too. But nonetheless, it's kind of an interesting thing. But you can do more with the alphabet than just write words and messages, though that's, of course, the key thing. Well, you can do things like alphabetize lists, we have a church directory of sorts that will be coming out. It will be alphabetized. You can outline your thoughts like a sermon, which has A, B, C, D, and things like that. And you can even make poetry out of the alphabet. And Psalm 34 is one of those places in the Old Testament where that, in fact, is done. This psalm is a very well-loved passage. It has some wonderfully... Uh, well-known verses like the angel of the Lord surrounds those who fear him and rescues them. That's verse 7. It has a verse that's used to describe what happened to Jesus on the cross about the Lord keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. It's a passage that is quoted many times in the New Testament. 1 Peter chapter 3 quotes five verses out of this psalm. And that's right in the middle of the book. It colors all of what Peter has to say about suffering, for God's sake. It's quoted by other New Testament books. It's quoted by John and Paul and the author of Hebrews. It's applied to Jesus as he's on the cross. It's applied to Christians and their suffering for the Lord. The early church loved this psalm. In fact, in the early centuries, they would often quote the verse when they had communion. They would quote the verse that said, Taste and see that the Lord is good. This is a psalm that teaches us about trust. It teaches us some of the ABCs of trusting God, reminding us that God never abandons his own in their trials. This morning in the Bible study, I talked about the setting of the song, that these are the sufferings of a sojourner. It's a, a man, David, going through trials. And we're even told in the heading of what the background is. It says, before verse 1, that heading a psalm of David when he feigned madness before Abimelech, who drove him away, and he departed. This is one of the longer headings that you find within the psalms. In the Hebrew Bible, this makes up what they call verse 1. So in the Hebrew Bible, there's actually 23 verses to, to this particular psalm. The historical background that's mentioned is the time that David feigned a madness. He acted like a madman to get away from the king of Gath. 
Here, the royal title of the king of Gath, Ahimelech, is used, Abimelech, rather, whereas if you read the story in 1 Samuel 21, which we'll be studying in a few weeks on the Lord's Day morning, uh, his birth name is Achish. Um, most of the Psalms don't have historical headings. There's only 14 that do. But what's interesting, of those 14, eight of them come out of this period where Saul was chasing David. And this one is one of the more powerful ones of them. It seemed to David like all might be lost, but no, the Lord brought him through. I mean, who would, who would guess that acting like a crazy man would work? Apparently, the king of Gath thought, well, there's no honor in killing a madman. Just let him disgrace himself. And the Lord sovereignly used that. And away David goes. So David writes this psalm as a song of public thanks, as well as a memorable teaching tool. Because, as I shared this morning, it's written as an acrostic. There's a lot of artistry that went into composing this. Charles Spurgeon said, it is, it is well to mark our mercies. It's good to mark our mercies with well-carved memorials. God deserves our best handiwork. And David really applied himself. Because the second thing I talked about this morning is the structure of the psalm, that this is an alphabet poem. It's an alphabet with a lesson. There's an acrostic arrangement built around the Hebrew alphabet. We have 22 verses here in our Bible. There are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. And for the most part, each verse starts with a new, the word that's chosen picks up the next letter of the alphabet. If you'd like, after the service, I can show you some visual aids uh, a picture of the text that you can see that a little more clearly. There, there are some peculiarities. For instance, the sixth letter is missing. And then the sixth letter from the end is doubled at the end. And the result is it highlights the, the middle verse then becomes verse 11, which has the statement, uh, Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord, which is the central idea. He's teaching those who will listen what comes with fearing the Lord, that there is refuge in him, that there is joy in him even in the midst of difficulty and trial. You can look at the handout I gave this morning for more detail about the acrostic. There's a, nonetheless, there's a flow of thought to the poem that's separate from those ABCs. There's two halves to the poem. The first half, verses 1 to 7, is a song of thanks. And the last portion, verses 8 to 22, is a word of instruction, a teaching. So I want us to now go verse by verse through the poem, and we're going to begin at verses 1 through 7, which is David's encouraging celebration of the Lord's deliverance. It starts with an opening call to praise in verses 1 to 3, where we see in verse 1 that he, David is determined to praise God always. He says, I will bless the Lord at all times, his praise shall continually be in my mouth. Usually when we hear the word blessing, we think about God blessing us with things. But sometimes the Bible speaks of us blessing God. Obviously, that's not an equivalent kind of blessing. When an inferior blesses a superior, what they are doing is acknowledging the goodness of the one who is over them. In fact, the, the parallel line, the second half of verse 1, explains what this blessing of the Lord is. It's, it's praising Him. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. At all times, continually. See how both lines mention this. It doesn't mean that every single thought of the day has to be about God. We can't get our laundry done or cook our dinner if we do that. Right? You're bound to have car accidents if you do that. 
But it means that in all the situations of life, from the hard ones to the easy ones, we live in the awareness that God is worthy of trust and praise and our delight. It doesn't even mean that we're always happy. Uh, sometimes Some of our songs are a little, mm, and now I am happy all the day, says one of the old songs. It's really not true. You know, Jesus wasn't happy all the day, all the time, was he? No. I'm, okay, there's a sentiment I agree with, that there's joy in the Lord. But uh, this verse doesn't mean, though, that it's a sin to be, have sadness. It means, though, that we know and love the one who is greater than all of our sorrows who enables us to have joy even in the midst of pain and to walk with him. In verse 2, we see David has an intention to encourage others with his testimony, that what's happened to him and this public thanks he's giving is for the benefit of others as well as to the glory of God. Uh, He says, My soul will make its boast in the Lord. The humble will hear it and rejoice. In the Bible, boasting, bragging is usually a bad thing, isn't it? But there's a kind of boast that's good and holy and right when the Lord is the object of that boast. Boasting in the Lord is really a kind of rejoicing in the Lord and all that He's done. It's really a means of boasting about the Lord. It's not gloating, it's a kind of godliness. You know, it's kind of a troubling thing when you have conversation with Christian people and it's easy for them to brag about all the good things that are going on in their life. You know, what they've done, what they've accomplished, their new car, their new this or that. But when it comes to talk about the Lord, they're kind of uh, all blanks (laughs) because they're not thinking about that very much. We need to be people who, who know our God, who know what He's doing in our lives, who know His Word so we can be mindful of the great things that God has done and not be so full of the great things we think we've done. My soul will make its boast in the Lord, how he had delivered me from this trouble, and the humble will hear it and rejoice. David introduces some other people now. The humble, the humble ones, it's plural. These are the true people of God who were in the nation of Israel, unlike Saul and his associates who were very proud in their sin. But these are others like David who had suffered in their lives while seeking to do what was right. In David's day, Saul was no friend of those who were humble before God. So, in fact, Saul tried to humiliate the godly so he could exalt himself as an unjust ruler. But David shares his public thanks to God partly for the benefit of others who are suffering, who are seeking the Lord and waiting on Him, that they would have encouragement that the Lord does see and hear and act. Come with me now to verse 3. In the last part of this call to praise, here is now the call to believers to join him in praise in verse 3. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Everything in this, uh, everyone who's addressed in this verse is in the plural. You all magnify the Lord with me and all of us, let's exalt his name, magnify and exalt. To magnify God is to make him great, to make great. Now, in one sense, you cannot make God any greater than He is. He is great. But this isn't talking about making His person bigger or whatever. It's this, it's our awareness, people's awareness of God's greatness that needs to be magnified. We can make His name great and that is, make His reputation great 
by speaking his praise, by representing him well. I, I like the analogy that the Christian, part of what the Christian is supposed to be is a magnifying glass to take the light of God's truth and his mercy and his grace and to make it loom big in the world. And that means that the glass needs to be focused on him and not on us. We want to exalt him, lift him high, uh, so that all would see how truly great he is. Well, after this opening call to, uh, to praise, then there begins in verses 4 to 7 the public testimony of God's deliverance. Uh, twice in these four verses, David will give thanks for what God did for him. But, but between those two thanks, he also is going to talk about what God does for the rest of God's people. So he's going to go from talking about himself to God's people to about himself to talking about God's people. In verse 4, there's a celebration of the Lord's deliverance of David. He says, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. This is looking back to the crisis that was mentioned in the heading when the king of Gath threatened to kill him and do away with the future king of Israel. He said, I sought the Lord. It doesn't mean he was running around looking for God, trying to figure out where he was. It's not like God is a genie in a bottle that you have to find or coax out. It's not that. It means he was seeking God in prayer, seeking a solution from the Lord. The term is used here for a search that is, the Hebrew word for search is full of longing and activity. It suggests an urgency in his prayer. At this point, when he's in the land of Philistia, he's far away from the tabernacle, far away from where the ark of God is, from anyone who really knows the Lord, and yet he's really not far from the all-present God. He sought the Lord when he was in a pagan, distant land, and God was there. God came to help him. He answered me, not with a voice, not with words. He answered him with works. He brought him deliverance. God's answer to the prayer is referred to in the end of the verse here where it says, and he delivered me from all my fears. Sometimes when we hear about fears, we think about internalized fear. Internalized fear is anxiety. But there, there are fearful things outside of us, and that's, that's what he's speaking about here. Like if you see a truck that is uh, kind of barreling towards you, that is a fearful thing there. And it's these fearful things, the king of Gath and his underlings and the Philistines that the Lord had delivered him out of. He delivered me from the things that could cause me so much fear and brought him to a place of safety. In verse 5, he shifts to talking about how God helps God's people. Here's encouragement about God's deliverance of his people in verse 5. They looked to him and were radiant, and their faces will never be ashamed. This verse is not about the situation that David was in. David was alone when he was in Gath at this point. But he's talking about what God does for his people in general. I think it's a mistake for our versions, some of our versions, to translate this in the past tense. The New American Standard has done that here. L listen to the way that the English Standard Version renders this verse. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. It's not speaking about any one particular event. It's talking about what God does for his people, generally speaking. Looking to him is the same thing that David had done in seeking the Lord and seeking his face, seeking his help 
those who seek the Lord, they become radiant, that there's this bright glow. It's the joy of knowing that God hears us, God sees us, God knows our trouble that we're in, and He has promised to bring help. Their faces will never be ashamed. The, the Hebrew term for shame, uh, this word, means to grow pale. Now, when you get embarrassed, maybe there's a funny joke or it's on you or you say something dumb and you're at the dinner table or wherever, your face typically goes red. That's embarrassment. But when you're mortified, your face goes white. The blood flushes out of you. That's the kind of term that's here. It's the, the shame, the disgrace of having put your faith in someone or something and they've utterly failed you and you're left to nothing. Those who look to the Lord never need to fear that. Of course, um, this is not our constant experience that we're always just bright, shiny, happy people. <laughs> you know, even David in this situation, at the moment it felt like things were terribly bleak. In fact, even in the story in 1 Samuel 16, uh, 21, it says he changed his complexion before the king. You know, he changed the way he looked to look like he wasn't so radiant at that moment. He looked like a nut. But that wasn't the permanent look on his face. God brought him through that. There are times of trial that will sadden us and our eyes will be weepy, our faces downcast. But the gospel gives us a perspective that ultimately brings us joy and promises us that in the end we will forevermore have the everlasting smile upon us. So this is the first round of testimony, verses 4 to 5. In verses 6 and 7, he kind of does this again. He talks about himself and then talks about what God does for his people. Verse 6, here's a celebration of the Lord's deliverance of David. He says, verse 6, This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. He calls himself this poor man, <laughs> the, 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 the guy who would go on to be royally rich. He's poor here in this moment, not because of his finances, although he is on the run and doesn't have a place to lay his head, as it were, but the kind of poorness he's speaking of is the poverty of options. He has no, has no uh, you know, this is not a moment to strike down Goliath. There's too many Goliaths. <laughs> in Gath at this point. All the money in the world would do him no good against the spears and the soldiers of Philistia. But God brought him out in the strangest of ways. God loves to bless those who know that they are poor in spirit, who have nothing to lean on, not their own understanding, not their own devices. And so God delivers David from physical distress in accordance with that promise that, he had been, that had been made over him by Samuel many years ago, that in fact he would go on to be the next king. And so the Lord delivers us from our troubles in accordance with the promises that he has made to us in the gospel of our Lord Jesus, that nothing shall separate us from the love of Christ. Uh, that if God be for us, who can be against us? Who is he that condemns? It's Christ Jesus is the one who's died for us. How could we be condemned? And so many other great and precious promises are ours. And the Lord will deliver us, sometimes through our troubles, 
but will certainly bring us to the end that he's promised to us. Now in verse 7, David switches back to talking about what God does for his people, encouragement about God's deliverance of his people. Verse 7, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. Here, the angel of the Lord probably doesn't mean an angel who came from the Lord, but to the Lord himself, the angel who is the Lord, his special presence sent to bring assurance and deliverance. This phrase and phrases like it are used in the Old Testament, I think, often refer to special manifestations of God. It is the same kind of language used when Joshua was getting ready to take the children of Israel into into the promised land. Moses was dead, and it looked like, from one perspective, it was just going to be a lifetime of endless wars. But the angel of the Lord appeared to him in chapter 5, verse 14, and assured him that the Lord of hosts would fight. The angel of the Lord encamps around them. That's a military term, encamps. It's not just the Lord, but also his hosts. His, you know, he is the Lord of hosts. That means Lord of armies. He has his heavenly messengers who are sent to do good to those who have been made heirs of everlasting life. God is able to muster all the forces that he needs, even things that are unseen to us. Every now and then in the Bible, God opened up the eyes of some of his people to see the, the spread uh, of his troops around. I think of the, the, the first time I know of this happening in, is in the book of Genesis when uh, Jacob, he's on the run from his brother Esau who's threatened to kill him. Jacob, who's supposed to be the heir of the promise. Jacob, who's supposed to help the, full, the, the promise come to, made to Abraham come true. He's running for his life. And God opens his eyes that he can see that there's these heavenly messengers going up and down right where he is. And years later, he's on the run from his uncle, Laban, and he's headed to meet his brother Esau. And who knows how that's going to go? It's a high-stress period in his life, Genesis 32. And the Lord opens his eyes, and he sees the angels of the Lord nearby. Genesis 32, 1-2, as Jacob went on his way, the angels of God met him. Jacob said when he saw them, this is God's camp. So he named that place Mahanaim, which means two camps, his and God's. God is with us, and his messengers are with us. We will likely not see them, but they're there. He knows how to protect his own. So these are the two rounds of thanks, uh, two rounds of testimony that David gives in verses 4 to 7. That concludes the first half of the psalm, this celebration of how the Lord brings deliverance. The second half of the psalm, the longer half, begins now in verse 8. From verse 8 to 22, we have instruction, encouraging instruction in the fear of the Lord. And the first half of this verses 8 to 14, is the call to enjoy the pleasures of God in the fear of the Lord. It's interesting that David's going to talk about how, how enjoyable the Lord is when he's been through one of the most unenjoyable experiences of his life. Well, that's the way it is, you know. Uh, isn't, our, isn't our life full of lots of very unenjoyable things? In the midst of the most distasteful, difficult things we face, the Lord is there to give us joy. And David takes on the role now of teacher and continues his ABCs 
to tell those who will listen how they might know the joys of God. The sweetness of dwelling in the Lord's refuge is discussed in verses 8 to 10, and that begins with the delight of God's goodness in verse 8. Verse 8, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Now, taste here is not taste testing. There's a, there used to be, not too far from us, an olive oil store that had also, that 30 flavors of olive oil and balsamic vinegars, and you could go in and take a little taste, a little bad piece of bread, and dip it and get a taste, and some were like, no, no, I don't think I want hyacinth and olive oil. Uh, and others, were, others were pretty good. You get a little taste, but you're not really enjoying it like you would at home. This idea of taste is not taste testing. It's not a sample. It's not, hey, just sample the Lord and you'll like it. No, this, this is the, the, the full experiential enjoyment of God. Now, of course, this is a metaphor. God is not tasteable. <laughs> but this is a metaphor that has some real meat to it. It is interesting that this is a part of a psalm of thanks. And when, when you as an Israelite came to the tabernacle to bring a thank offering, you would tell the priest why you were bringing this offering. David made it a habit to write songs to be sung when he brought his thank offering. And then when it was done, you took some of the beef home. And you would taste it and have a meal and invite your family and friends. Ironic, huh? Taste and see that the Lord is good. But you know, tasting the Lord is more than just a ceremony. Once a month, we observe the Lord's table together, and we have this visible, touchable, tasteable reminder of the Lord's goodness, that we have fellowship with Him as if sitting at table with Him because of His body given for us, His blood shed for us. And yet, tasting the Lord's goodness must be more than just some ceremony. It needs to be the sweet experience of the believer of knowing God, that God is for you and with you. There is sweetness in that, especially when you're going through the press of life. This is the delight of God's goodness. And David ends that verse, verse 8, by saying, How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. It's interesting that the word for man here, geber, it means a strong man. At this point in David's life, he was kind of a strong man. He'd been Saul's uh, head of military forces. He's about to lead a ragtag group of crowd of misfits in, in the wilderness for years. But David knew that what really made him strong was finding refuge in the Lord. He could have been the greatest he-man on earth. He could have been like a Samson. But without the Lord, he was nothing. Taking refuge in the Lord suggests at least to a degree that we are his refugees. You know, we don't think of refugees as strong people. If we have in the news about people being airlifted out of Afghanistan, they're, but for the military supply in the plains, they're helpless people. We don't think of them as strong. But we have fled to the refuge of the Lord, and in his refuge we find strength. We find an ability to do what we could not normally do. Just as David had found a way out of his trouble, he could not have imagined. Also, finding refuge in the Lord isn't just getting safety there. It's also, this is the place we choose to stay. This is the one to whom we are loyal. He is our rock. All our victory and all our identity is associated with him. In verse 9, he talks about God's provision to those who fear him. 
He talked about the individual man in verse 8. Now he speaks about the, the group of God's people. Oh, fear the Lord, you His saints. For to those who fear Him, there is no want. The fear Him, the fear of the Lord here is not only reverence, it is that, but it's also this sense of loyalty that we would dare not go uh, give our pledge, our loyalty to anyone else. We belong to Him. And as we attach ourselves to Him, we find that all of our needs are met. There is no want. It's like Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. Everything I need is supplied by Him. It's as Peter says that the gospel gives us all things needed for life and godliness. I like the way the New English translation renders this. He says, remain loyal to the Lord, you chosen people of His, for His loyal followers lack nothing. That's the idea. That's not an airtight promise at the end there that you're going to avoid all sorts of trouble. In fact, there's all kinds of trouble that surrounds this psalm. Verse 19, we'll talk about more trouble that will come. This is a promise, though, that looks at the long picture. In the end, when it's all said and done, we'll see that the Lord provided for us everything we needed. Charles Spurgeon said, The Lord will not allow His faithful servants to starve. He may not give luxuries, but the promise binds Him to supply necessaries, and He will not run back from His word. Many whims and wishes may remain ungratified, but real ones the Lord will supply. In verse 3, David warns of the folly of living outside of the fear of the Lord. And he uses this strange, what seems to us like a strange word picture. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. Young lions? Why mention that? And what are we supposed to think of? Now, young lions here, these are not baby cubs. Don't think of cute little baby cubs. Oh, everyone wants to want the little baby cubs to do well. It's not that. These are young adult lions. These are predators at the height of their powers. They, are, they seem to us to be like the least likely creature who's going to starve. Top of the food chain. They don't fear anything. Old lions, well, that might be different. Baby lions, oh, that might be different. But young lions, they are creatures of prey in their prime. Young lions, it's a word picture for people who are totally self-sufficient. A kind of self-sufficiency that doesn't look to the Lord, doesn't trust in Him, doesn't see Him as the source of strength, that relies on its own understanding and its own plans and its own power. These are the kind of young lions that are mentioned here. Just like lions depend on themselves and they don't fear anything, not even God. So likewise, there are people in the world that way. But in the end, the most fearsome people you can think of, are gonna, they're going to learn the hard way that self-sufficiency is insufficient for eternity. They will be brought to a stop and an end and they'll be at a loss Unlike those who seek the Lord, at the end of verse 10, those who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. Those who seek His help in prayer, knowing that their refuge is in Him, 
they'll have, as verse 9 had said, all that they need for life and godliness. Now we come to verses 11 to 14, which is about the importance of living in the fear of the Lord. David really takes on the role of teacher now. He calls the students to himself in verse 11. Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. This is the middle verse of the psalm, and it reveals the central purpose of the psalm, which is to teach us trust in God. You children is literally, O sons, and he's not speaking as an adult to youth. This is him speaking to anyone who will listen, who will be his student. And so the teaching session begins. Learning the fear of the Lord means learning to trust him in spite of everything else, to trust him instead of trusting ourselves, to, to believe that his ways are best, even when sinful ways might be the easy way out of our troubles. It's, it's also living in light of the long perspective of God's work in our lives, that there's a long arc of justice that's working, that he is working out for his glory and our good. He calls anyone who will listen to sit and hear how God ought to be trusted. There's an offer of abundant life made in verse 12 to anyone who will take on this lesson. Who is the man who desires life and loves length of days that he may see good? Now, this is a rhetorical question because everybody wants the sort of life that's good and enjoyable. The, the kind of life, the good he's speaking of, the length of days is a, a quality of life that has the blessing of God on it. It's not talking about constant ease and easy success and tangible prosperity. It's not that sort of thing. It's a life full of the knowledge and the goodness of the Lord, that God is at work accomplishing His purposes in you. God is answering your prayer. God is bringing about His glory and your good. But, you know, to have that kind of life, that God-blessed life, there's a path that has to be followed, and many people don't want to go down that path because it's a path of commitment. It's a path of self-denial. It's a path of, of, uh, of, of letting go of your own plan and leaving it in God's hands instead. This sort of person who gives himself over to the Lord is the one who enjoys something of the divine purposes that God has for men and women who know him. In verses 13 and 14, he gives some proverbial instruction. It sounds, these two verses, like something right out of the Proverbs. Verse 13, Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. These verses spell out what fearing the Lord looks like, what a lifestyle lived in the presence of God looks like. It, it, it transforms your character into someone who is aware that God sees all that you do and you want to honor Him in all that you do. I like the way the New English translation uh, par sort of paraphrases these two verses. It says, Do you want to really live? Would you love to live a long, happy life? then make sure you don't speak evil words or use deceptive speech. Turn away from evil and do what is right. Strive for peace and promote it. Those who trust in God find a new ability to live, a new way to live 
they've entered into the kind of abundant life that Jesus talked about that comes from the transforming grace that God gives to those who know him. There's proverbial instruction uh, on how to fear the Lord. Now, the last major part of the psalm is verses 15 to 22. Counsel to trust. To trust in the presence of God in the midst of adversity. Verses 15, 16, 17, and 18, these four verses speak about the nearness of God in times of trouble. In, those, uh, in these verses, there's going to be several phrases about God's personal presence or sometimes even his absence. We'll see that uh, we, we read that the Lord has eyes and ears and a face, uh, which all indicate to us that God is aware. God is there. See in verse 15 about the Lord's eyes and ears are open to the righteous. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears are open to their cry. He pays attention to godly ones when they pray. He hears their cry for help. Whenever we go through trouble and we look to the Lord, we need to keep praying in faith, believing that he sees and he hears. He sees us even though we don't see him. He hears us even though we don't hear him. He's there. Now this uh, verse is a figure of speech. The Lord is a spirit. He does not have eyes and ears. But th this kind of expression is used to make it clear to us that God is fully aware. But note now the opposite in verse 16, how the Lord's face is turned away from the wicked. Verse 16, the face of the Lord is against evildoers to cut off the memory of them from the earth. That might seem spiteful to you, but that's not David's point here. He wants his readers to know that God is not blessing the powerful people who are oppressing them. It's wrong to think, I have power, I have ability, therefore God has blessed me. Well, in one sense, God blesses everyone. Every moment is a gift of his. But it's wrong to think, I have this power, this privilege, therefore God approves of me. That's the wrong way to think. David wants his readers to know that God is not blessing the doing of evil that the wicked are up to. God sovereign, sovereignly ordains all things, but that's not the same as his approving and blessing of evil. This had to be an encouraging thought for David as he faced the wrath of Abimelech, king of Gath, who with a word could have had him put down. This verse also functions as a warning against Hebrew people who might think that they were just automatically blessed because they were Jews. But the law had warned that those who forsook the covenant with God would not be blessed, but would be removed. In fact, the term to be cut off that's used here is used in Genesis. Genesis 17, 14, God speaking to Abraham, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So it's not just Philistines who are in danger of God's wrath. It's also Hebrews, Hebrew people who did not truly know him. Look how God vindicated David at the end of all of this story. Look how God vindicated David through history. I want you to think now for a minute. We know the names of David's kids and grandkids and great-grandkids. I mean, you, you know at least one, right? Solomon. 
right? And, and you, you know where to go in your Bible to find. There's the names of them. Now, tell me now, who exactly is the son of Abimelech again? The king of Gath? Who? Who? What? What? Where? Where are they? Their memory's been cut off. In God's time and in His perfect justice, that evil kingdom which had menaced God's people for so long came to an end. Come with me to verses 17 and 18 and see the Lord's response to His people's prayers. Verse 17 says, The righteous cry and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Again, David is speaking about what God does for his people in general. He speaks in the plural, the righteous, that is, the righteous ones. They cry, and the Lord hears. Again, it's not a guarantee that you'll escape all trouble and never experience it. Uh, and it's not some sort of crude view that says, well, you just do good and good will happen to you. It's not simply that. The, the psalm is speaking in general terms about this life, but I think it even hints at the life which is to come. The brokenhearted ones. The Lord is near the brokenhearted. Literally, He is near the shattered ones of heart. He's near those who have shattered hearts. People who have been seized by despair over their situations, whose plans have been brought to an end. People who have been made to realize that they are poor, and they are therefore poor in spirit. David had just been in an impossible situation where his odds of escape seemed non-existent. And the Bible is full of people who have moments like this. People like Abraham and Sarah and Hagar and Moses and Naomi and Ruth and Jesus. But God is able to bring healing and restoration in His perfect plan. The most profound example of one who experiences this kind of help from the Lord is the one who's come to see the greatest loss and devastation of all, the, one, the sinner who sees himself or herself as brokenhearted before God. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to your cross I cling. The Lord knows how to heal and help those who see they have no other recourse but him who turned to him for everlasting life and light and it is for those who see their need that Jesus assures he's come to heal the brokenhearted we come to the last segment of the psalm in verses 19 to 22 the promise of ultimate deliverance in 19 and 20 we see the many troubles of the righteous and the Lord's preservation of his people Verse 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Many are the bad things of the righteous, is what it is literally, the bad things. Uh, one version says, the godly face many dangers, but the Lord saves them from each one of them. Again, it's not an airtight promise of never going through any difficulty. It certainly isn't a promise that you'll never physically die. I mean, even David died, didn't he? He did. God didn't, doesn't promise us to keep us away from all harm, but He does promise to keep us in all of our ways and to bring us through all our harms. The long arc of the Bible's promises make us look to the hope of heaven 
and the reality of resurrection where our ultimate hopes are fulfilled. We come to verse 20, a verse that's quoted in the New Testament with reference to Jesus. David says, He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. We'll talk in a moment about what this has to do with Jesus and what it has to do with us. Uh, for now, think with me about what the opposite of a broken uh, bone is. The, uh, the opposite of keeping bones, he keeps all his bones. Now, this is not talking about a, a casket. <laughs> this is talking about keeping bones intact. The opposite of keeping bones is breaking bones. It's a metaphor for painful suffering. We're not talking about some kind of hairline fracture here either. This is the kind of torture that racks the body. And in context of everything that's being said in the verses around it, the idea is that even though the believer might be brokenhearted and broken down, God will not utterly abandon him. Bones here are representative of the, the inner being. You know, I don't see my bones. I know I've got them, but they're, they're inside of me in, in that sense that refers to the, the inner man. God is with the brokenhearted. He keeps them intact. They might be broken in many ways, but they will not be utterly broken. In this context, that's the idea of this phrase. Now, some have thought, some commentators have thought, that because we switched in the poem to talking about one person, that maybe this is a prophecy about the Messiah. The nouns have switched again from the uh, the plural to the singular, but remember, we've seen the psalm has done that all throughout it. David talking about himself, David talking about the righteous back to himself. It is true that John uh, chapter 19 quotes this verse and applies it to Jesus on the cross. But remember that when the New Testament says that, um, that Jesus fulfills something, it doesn't mean necessarily that that was a prophecy about him. Jesus can fulfill many things in Scripture, not only prophecies. It's John 19, 31 to 37, where this, the story of him on the cross, and we're told in verse 36, these things came to pass to fulfill the Scripture, quote, not a bone of him shall be broken. This is a loose quotation here from Psalm 34. Actually, uh, John is quote, mixing together several different verses. There's uh, two verses about the Passover lamb, from Exodus and Numbers, that it says that it gives instructions that the bones are not to be broken. And the way he quotes here, he actually mixes together three different verses and applies it to Jesus. John's point is that Jesus is like the Passover lamb, and so his legs were not broken. Jesus is the perfect righteous man. Uh, so uh, this verse, I believe, here in Psalm 34 is not a prophecy about Jesus. There's nothing in the context that indicates we're shifting to talking about somebody else, someone in the future. Speaking generally about the righteous person, Jesus is the ultimate righteous man. He's the ultimate sufferer. And what is metaphorically true of God's people is literally true of him. And that's something, one of the ways that these fulfillment phrases are used. Things that are generally or metaphorically true of God's people, for Jesus they become literally true. Jesus fulfills these words not because they're a prophecy. He fulfills them in the sense that they are a pattern that he fills. 
and he fills it ultimately. You know, it's interesting, the psalm talks about how David delivers people from earthly trouble. Physical death. He was spared from physical death, wasn't he? Right? Jesus wasn't. Jesus wasn't. He died. And yet he wasn't defeated. He did rise from the dead. (laughs) That's a pretty amazing victory. And that sets a pattern for us, too, you know. We may face trouble that we don't get out of. God is still with us. God's still doing his plan. But nothing is going to get us out of the promise of resurrection. We have a, you know, we have a whole other life to live. We're, we're so fixated by our watches and our clocks and our calendars and planning out our day and our week and our retirement and how many more decades of life do I have and what about my You have a whole other life ahead of you where you're going to forever enjoy and tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. We have to live more in the awareness of that reality. Look with me in verse 21, and a warning about the self-destruction of the wicked and their ultimate answer to justice. Evil will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. Here, the wicked is the wicked one. It's the individual. It's focusing on the individual sinner. But then in the end of the verse, it's those who hate the righteous. Evil will slay the wicked. Uh, You know, the word evil can mean moral evil, sin, But it can also mean calamity, hurricanes, earthquakes, disease, death. Same word. And it is ironically fitting that those who live a life of moral evil face another kind of evil. Whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. Evil, you see, sin is the ultimate boomerang. And the only escape is the grace of God. Verse 22 ends with the psalm with a positive promise. The Lord's promise to deliver his suffering people and vindicate them in the end. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants, and none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Redeems the whole life of his people, not just the inner spirit, but the whole being. Sometimes the word soul in the Old Testament means just the inside of me. But most of the time, it actually refers to the whole person. Like when Abraham left Ur of the Chaldees, we're told that he brought with him, the King James says, 300 souls. He wasn't a soul winner. He brought 300 people with him, their whole being. The Lord redeems, rescues, buys back his servants, lock, stock, and barrel. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. And the condemnation here, I think, is not the condemnation of God against the wicked in the previous verse. It's the condemnation that the wicked keep heaping out on God's people. The condemnation of people like Achish and Saul. The righteous often suffer unjust accusations. But in the end, God's justice comes around right. The wicked are punished and the righteous are publicly declared righteous. In the meantime, you know, the temptation for the righteous is to take judgment into their own hands, to make things right themselves, but to do it in a wrong way, to use the plans of flesh to get even. We have to learn, like the Apostle Paul taught, that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. No, we fight with spiritual weapons and we fight through prayer. We have learned to take refuge in the Lord. 
not in our own sinful responses. And so we found in this psalm some ABCs of trusting God, reminding us that God never abandons his own in their trials. Now I'm going to conclude tonight by giving you my own acrostic. I shared this morning that you can't really translate these acrostics in a way that's faithful. So what the, the, the translation I'm going to give you now, if a student of mine gave this to me, he would fail. <laughs> but this is an, this is an, uh, an artistic reflection <laughs> on this. Now think about it. Every verse I'm going to begin with an A, B, C, D. All right. At all times I will bless the Lord. His praise will continually be on my mouth. Boasting in the Lord is what my soul will do. The humble will hear it and rejoice. Come magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Diligently I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my troubles. Everyone who looks to him is radiant and their faces need never be ashamed. Greatly in need this man cried to the Lord and he heard him and delivered him out of all his troubles. Hovering around those who fear him is the angel of the Lord, and he delivers them. I want you to taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Joyfully fear the Lord, you saints of his, for there's no lack to those who trust in him. Kingly lions may lack in hunger, but those who seek the Lord will not be in want of any good thing. Listen, O children, and come to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord, Men who desire life and want to see good days need to keep their tongues from evil and their lips from speaking deceit. Out from evil they must go and do good. Peace is what they must pursue and seek. Cued on the righteous are the eyes of the Lord, and his ears are attentive to their prayers. Rightly does the Lord face away from evildoers so as to remove their memory from the earth. The righteous cry, and the Lord hears them and ushers them out of all their troubles. Very near is the Lord to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. While the afflictions of the righteous are many, the Lord delivers them out of them all. Exposed to anguish, his bones are still kept. Not one of them is broken. Yet evil will slay the wicked and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. Zealously the Lord redeems the soul of his servants. Under his refuge, none will ever be condemned. Lord, thank you for teaching us some ABCs of trusting you. How you are worthy of our, of our running to, of seeking you. Even though we can't see you or hear you, you are surely there. And you are causing all things to work together for good for us because we have been called according to your purpose. May we remember that purpose, that plan of the ages you have set up for us in Jesus. May we remember the promises you've made to us. And as we face adversity and trial and trouble, make us remember that you're there, that you are good, and that we may taste and enjoy your presence even in the midst of our trouble. And so may we bring glory to you and magnify your name and by your grace, attract others to the good news of Jesus. In Jesus' good name we pray, amen.